You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to Page to Stage. A conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. And that's Mary. Join us as we focus the spotlight back on the theater maker to uncover their process. We speak with folks in the industry that often aren't heard from. Such as stage managers, producers, crew members, marketing professionals. And everything in between. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Drew Scott here. And I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jessica Paz. I am a sound designer. Welcome. We're we're very excited. I can definitely speak for Brian and say that we're super excited because you were actually our first person that works in the sound industry or sound field, if you will. Um, oh, fun. Yeah. Can you begin by telling our listeners a little bit about some of the key members of the sound team and how they assist bringing your vision to life? Working directly with me is either an associate or an assistant or both, depending on the show. Uh, We then have an A1, or in London known as the number one, whose role is to mix the show on a nightly basis. Uh, We also then have an A2, or as known in London, a number two, uh, who is backstage and facilitating all of the RF microphones that the actors are wearing and uh, supporting the band. Sometimes we may also have uh, an A3 or number three. Um, Usually in London, there's both a number two and three. Uh, In the States, there's usually just an A2. Uh, but for productions at, uh, for instance, the Delacour, depending on the size of the show, we sometimes have casts in upwards of 150 people. Uh, and we tend to then have four A2s. Uh, so it can, depending on, on uh, the team. In a regional theater, I'd be collaborating with an audio supervisor who represents the space. Um, Broadway and off-Broadway commercial theater, uh, there would be a production audio person whose job is to install the system. I think that there sometimes can be an advanced audio person uh, if you're putting together a tour, and there can also be an assistant production audio person, uh, which does exist at the Delacorte. So uh, the, the teams the teams can get pretty large at times. <laughs> The more collaboration, I guess. At what point in the process of putting up a show, whether it's new or whether it is a revival or something at a regional theater that's, you know, uh, that's being licensed, at what point in the process do you jump on board and start working on designs? Oh, it depends. Um, some some shows, you know, uh, a show that I'm sort of signing on to for the future is bringing me on. There isn't even a scenic design yet. Um, so, you know, that's that's one scenario. Another scenario is that I get brought on, you know, right when there's a scenic design already developed. Yeah, it depends. It depends, really. Is it he- more helpful to you when there is a scenic design already kind of set or at least established? I like to be in the room 
when the show itself is being developed. So before the scenic design, because there, there may be elements of the sound design uh, that we want to incorporate into the scenery. And so knowing that before the scenic design is even, you know, thought about is, is really great. Um, but I also, you know, bring other, I'm, I'm opinionated. So <laughs> um, uh, I like to have input in the room and in the, in the development process where the story is concerned as well. So I feel like Sound design is one of those elements of the theater that a lot of people, even the people in the theater, don't necessarily fully understand because it's not a physical piece that's on stage, you, you right? You can't see it. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's so conceptual. So I wonder, what are your conversations with a director look like when you're discussing their vision and trying to bring their vision to life? If sometimes maybe the director doesn't have the full technical vocabulary that you might have? Uh, depends. Are we talking about a musical or a play, right? So they, they both differ. Um, with a play, you know, you're developing material either with an additional composer or editing found music. And so there'll be like, you know, a big audition list of, of music that we may want to use for the show that I'll send to the director and they'll listen to and they'll tell me what sort of feels like the vibe of the show. And then that narrows it down even further. Uh, and then we start talking about individual moments within. For a musical, I encourage directors to speak to me in terms of feeling and, and vibe. And then I have to interpret what it is that means. And and then once, you know, there are microphones on people and we've, you know, the A1 has had an opportunity to learn the show and we get to, we get through tech and we've sort of like put all the cues in place and, and um, you know, kind of refined things. Then, you know, first dress rehearsal, the A1 has an actual crack at running the thing from top to bottom and mixing it. Uh, and, and I usually, I depending on the director, some of them will ask me when when is a good time for them to give me notes. Uh, I usually say um, like after after first preview uh, because I want the A1 to have you know two times through the thing before we start berating them with uh, with opinions. You know, give them give them an opportunity to you know get through the show twice. Give me an opportunity to uh, get through some of the bigger notes, which may take care of some notes that might be coming from the director. Uh, before we start really digging into the nitty gritty stuff. So not to mention that I, I sort of uh, delay, you know, the the sound. It It's very interesting because once you add, you know, 300, 500, 1200 audience members into a room, uh, it either makes the sound go and like come together really nicely or, you know, you finally have some absorption in the room and so now you can really get to work and be like oh this isn't quite you know coming through as well as we'd like or this needs a little work or here's here's what happens to you know now we have all this absorption so now it actually needs to be a little louder lots of things like that those conversations that you're having let's say after the first preview how long do those conversations last? Is it is it like ever is it ever growing and meaning that throughout the preview process that you could be talking about something for the for the three weeks for the four weeks or however long preview is or do you try to wrap it up or to come to like a <clears throat> i'm trying to think of the right word here do you try to kind of resolve this, the situation 
as soon as possible? Or do you do you like to let it kind of like fester a little bit to see what else happens and see what else kind of grows as a result of that? It depends. So, you know, a lot of the times we'll be working, it's, it's not just the director that's giving me notes. It's the MD, it's the music supervisor, it's the orchestrators. Um, sometimes, you know, in, in particularly difficult uh, sequences, we might set aside during the preview process, uh, you know, a week from first preview, some dedicated hour of time for our A1 and myself and the music team to sort of work on uh, work on numbers, etc. There's some dedicated time with band sound check and band continuity calls where we get to work on specific notes. So sometimes there may be a note that just needs to get pushed off until we do have that one hour continuity call with the band, or we do, you know, we do get priority in rehearsal and priority early on might go to the choreography for this whole number needs to be redone. Or there's these, a bunch of, you know, uh, script rewrites that we need to incorporate within the first couple of days of previews. And then we can focus on sound and dedicated time for lighting. So it, it, it really depends on what shape the show is in. Um, is it a revival, which means there's not going to be a lot of script changes. Uh, so that changes things. If it's a new work, then they're going to be rewriting it every day. Hopefully not all the way up until opening, but hopefully only until about a week before opening. Uh, so, you know, in, in every process, it's a little bit different. So we'd love to go step by step with you on one of your processes, if you will, of working on a show. Do you have a specific show that you would like to maybe focus the conversation on? Maybe Little Shop or Town? Do you have a preference? Yeah, it's fine. Town is great. Little Shop is sure. also, also super fun to talk about. Sure. Um, totally. Like if you have something about one or the other that we don't necessarily talk about, you could jump in and say, well, on this one, um, we did this. But if we're taking Town for example, um, so actually this is really interesting because you were Nevin's associate, Nevin Steinberg's associate on two other shows before this on Broadway. So what was that process like now jumping on board with Nevin as a co-designer for Hades Town, And how did that really um, adjust your relationship working together, if at all? Well, uh, so it's interesting. I was actually hired as his associate on Town Canada first. So he was off of the show. Uh, he wasn't really available for Canada, but he was very interested in the show. And on a whim, which he doesn't usually do, uh, made the suggestion of sending an excellent associate. Um, that's an actual quote from his email. So, <laughs> and oddly, you know, generally speaking, directors and producers don't say yes to that. And they happen to say yes. So and, and maybe that had something to do with the fact that I, I have a design career of my own uh, outside of working with Nevin. And maybe they knew my work. I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, so I went to Canada for the month and uh, did did the show and made tons of artistic decisions about about the sound and worked very closely with the music team and the director. Uh, he came out for like a day and a half, uh, bought me a nice steak that was great. And, um, and then a year later, uh, you know, we everyone had thought that the show was gonna go to Broadway sooner, but instead of going to Broadway, they decided to do an additional out of town in London at the National Theater. And Nevin was also largely unavailable for that. Uh, I think he came and joined us for like two days. Um, so he came in, saw some rehearsal, watched the show that night, 
came to rehearsal the next day, watched the show again that evening, and then got back on a plane. Um, and uh, because he knew that he was going to be unavailable, he and the producer and the director uh, had a discussion and all agreed that based on the development work that I had done in Canada, that I should become the co-designer. So I became co-designer for London. So basically, I, I, I did the show on my own. Uh, and then Nevin came in for the two days and, uh, you know, gave his thoughts. I think he came in maybe third, third or fourth preview, something like that. It was great. It was great. I mean, it really, you know, we had three years of an established relationship uh, prior to that. So the learning curve was not uh, too steep for me. It was it was really about remembering that, uh, you know, we were we were equal partners in in the venture as opposed to he's my boss. However, he's also done 50 something Broadway shows. So it would be foolish of me to uh, ignore his good advice, you know. So and and if I, you know, it's like, oh, hey, you know, well, why we could you know, we're looking at this moment and we were on the phone all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, for instance, we needed to add vocals, vocal foldback on the stage for the actors, which is not something we usually do in musical theater because we don't want vocals coming out of speakers pointed at microphones that actors are wearing. Uh, it doesn't tend to end in good results. Um, but the style of this music and the concert feel of it the, the fact that it's based on a concept album really lended itself to the actors needing that information on the stage. And so there was a long sort of summit meeting with the director and the producer and the whole music team and me and Nevin by phone and all like weighing the pros of cons of how to implement this. And so we went in the next day and we're like, you know what, we'll give it a try. We'll see how it goes. And here's how we're gonna implement it. And if it's a total disaster, we, we know that that's possible, uh, but maybe it won't be, and we'll see how everyone feels about it. So, you know, we, we, we tag team the whole thing. And, and you know, the, the nice thing is, you know, I, I have a lot of experience. I've done, you know, hundreds of shows over the course of my career, um, but his career is twice as long as mine. So it was nice to have um, the support system in, hey, this is my opinion of how bad this is gonna go if we do this. <laughs> and were you right? Huh? Were you right in the end? No, there's still full, there's still vocals in the foldback on oh, stage. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we, we just, we developed a system of how to go about doing so. And uh, it actually worked out really well. And the fact that the actors are all on boom mics for the show is really what is helping us make it work. Can you bring us back to when you first got the script or um, I don't know if it was just the concept album at the point where you jumped in, where did you jump off from and what did your mind start doing when you looked at the script? How do you form your vision as a sound designer? I only listened to the concept album once, which was right after I got the show. And then I never listened to it again because I didn't want to get bogged down in trying to make a replica of that. And I wanted it to be an organic process uh, with myself and the music team of finding what the sound of the live show was meant to be. It didn't mean that it wasn't informed by the concept album, but I mean, essentially it was a, it was sort of a broad, broad wash of ideas. 
And, you know, going into Canada, we just decided that we wanted to have a computer to host uh, Apple main stage, uh, which would then interface with the console to host all of our reverb plugins and effect plugins, because essentially we felt that because it was a you know, this myth and et cetera, that we we wanted to essentially have everyone in some amount of reverb all the time, even if very subtle. And when we got to Canada, I decided that that concept stood up except for the character of Hermes, which is essentially, he's like, he's both inside and outside the story. And so we decided that Hermes never gets reverb. So Hermes has, except when Hermes blows the train whistle, that has a ton of reverb on it. And like, frankly, if 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 the cue didn't hit and the reverb didn't happen, that whistle sounds completely like something totally different. Yeah, it was just a rule. Hermes never gets reverb. Ghosts, if you know, ghosts always get reverb. It's how you know they're dead. So you start like outlining these like things with the characters and that's really where you jump off from. Mm-hmm. And then there was this idea of Hades because it's Patrick Page and he has this super deep bass voice that we would kind of send him always to the subwoofers or send him to a subharmonic synthesizer all the time. We even tried putting a microphone on his chest so that we could like pick up the rever- you know the reverberation inside his chest. Um, but what happens is that the the propagation of that low end information takes some some amount of time longer than the main PA to kind of that you feel it. And I was feeling like that that super low energy into the subwoofers was arriving late. So it wasn't it wasn't really working. But as we continued developing the show, uh, we kind of use this like PA delay effect on him when he's singing Why We Build the Wall, which is what ends act one, so that he sounds like he's coming out of all of the speakers in Hades Town. Um, so when we get to this song called Chant Two, in act two, um, he's very menacingly singing and uh, and then he, he like climbs the stairs toward this great moment where he stands on top of this this uh, balcony and uh, the lights behind him, which are all blinders start really bright. And he ends up being just in silhouette because you can't see anything in front of him. And then screams out, I conduct the electric city. And in that moment, and for that one sentence alone, we sent him to a subharmonic synthesizer and to the subwoofers and also repeat that PA effect, except now it's magical because he's not standing in front of a microphone with that delay, it's like he is a god and he has just now spread his voice all over Hades Town and didn't need any tool to do so. I was wondering if you were going to talk about that line because I just listening to the cast album like last week or something, I was also thinking about about like the, just this like the sound setup for just that specific line. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially there's a duplicate of his microphone that is called Hades Low. And uh, it, it, it gets turned on and combined with his regular microphone and is sent to the subharmonic synth effect, which then goes to the PA and the subwoofers, which takes his very low voice and actually makes it even lower. And the propagation delay in the subwoofers is pretty cool because he says the line and then you feel it. 
it's kind of pretty wicked um because it's not exactly in time like the subwoofers are aligned to the sound system but that those frequencies just travel through the air much slower so by the time he's done saying the sentence you feel that hit your chest and then the song moves on and 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 the effect is gone and you're like what just happened <laughs> well it's kind of magical the way that you're talking about how we feel as audience members literally feel the sound because i don't know if there's any other design element or piece of the theater that you literally feel unless you're in some like really weird um, immersive theater where they're touching you. <laughs> but, but that's really cool. Do you ever feel that that part of the gig is working in your brain to think about like how you're going to uh, execute certain pieces of sound? I mean, listen, you hear sound, you hear the show, but I think it's more important to focus on how the sound makes you feel as opposed to, I don't actually want the sound to be something that draws your attention to it. Except except in this instance where it's like, oh my God, the sound was so good. I didn't notice it unless you made me notice it with, a, with an effect, like in that moment or with this, you know, we have a microphone in the show. It's a, an Evelyn mic by Ear Trumpet Labs, which is a double-headed mic. Uh, they used those and these these uh, Edwinas, which are single-headed uh, microphones at New York Theater Workshop. And then they we were using them in Canada. The single-headed mics got cut. They were the fates like stood at them and sang sometimes, and the staging changed, and so those mics got cut but the double-headed Evelyn mic stayed and it was wired and did function and then in London we added three turntables to the stage and so there was no way that we could be trailing a chord behind an actor when there's three turntables spinning like it would it would kill people so so we cut the chord literally and now you know we were tasked with with you know having to how do we make it sound like so that 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 mic actually works? Um, and so what we what we do is we I mean we just add like it's like this super subtle vintage like slightly distorted tube like vacuum tube effect. And what we do is it's additive. So when Hermes uses the mic it's that sort of tube amplifier sound, but it's again, a duplicate input of, of his microphone that then gets added to, but it's not just routed to the front, the PA that's facing you. It's also routed to all of the surround speakers. So as soon as he steps up to the microphone, his voice is now coming from all around you as opposed to just from in front of you. Um, and it's like I said, it's super duper subtle. Um, when, and then Patrick uses it, Hades, uh, for why we build the wall. And um, that's just a nice effects end to, you know, this, this delay effect. And then Persephone uses it at the top of Act 2, which is the same effect that was on Hades, just about half as loud. And then Orpheus uses it to sing for Hades about three quarters of the way through the show. Uh, he performs a, a, a number called Epic Three and uh, he uses it. And so that's just like a very subtle, just again, a very subtle, subtle effect. So it's- Do the mm. physical placements of their mics 
uh, come into play when, when you're talking about these types of sounds that you're trying to create? Or is it more of just like a logistical thing with like costume or just movement? And even the um, microphone choice that yeah. you... I mean, I pretty use. much stick to a standard microphone choice. I'm, I'm always putting deep, using DPA, um, 4061s or 6061s now. Uh, if it's a, a head-worn position and the uh, omni, they're omnidirectional. And then the, the boom microphones are also omnidirectional, which means they pick up sound from all sides. So <laughs> that being said, you know, using an omnidirectional microphone uh, and putting vocals on the stage is not an easy task. We would we would have a little bit more road uh, if we used a cardioid mic, uh, but omnis sound better. So uh, we 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 always stick with those for the most part. So, you know, when when you when you're talking about oh microphone choice, like it's I'm I'm pretty limited. Like that is my tool of choice. That is what I go to over and over and over again. It is in my opinion, the best tool for the job. That being said, every once in a while, someone doesn't sound good on it. And I then, you know, go to a Sennheiser Mickey one or, you know, some other, some other choice, but because different microphones do sound better on different people. Um, for the most part, you know, 99% of the time, everybody sounds just fine on the DPAs, but you might get one or two people, you know, every fifth show or something that, kind of you're like hmm i think that could be better what can we do so i guess a lot of audiences don't realize that a lot of work goes into the show before you even get into the theater can you talk about what the shop process is like for you as a designer and or explain really what the shop process is to our listeners that might not know um can i back it up a little bit from there yeah totally to begin, um, you know, we use like Google Sheets or Excel or something and we create like a flow, which is basically uh, everything that's coming into the console and everything that's going out of the console and then what connects to it on each end. So what microphone, it outlines microphones, how it's laid out in the desk, and then it outlines speakers, processors, amplifiers, all of that. And then based on this very, you know, detailed document, um, which is sort of like the cornerstone of the whole thing, other paperwork gets developed. So from that, we can then count how many of each thing we need and we can build a shop order, which then goes out to bid. There's three shops in New York uh, that, that it gets sent to. They send back how much money they want to charge us for that. Whoever has the lowest price generally wins the bid or sometimes you know, producers' relationships with shops comes into play, et cetera or our relationships with shops might come into play. Uh, from that flow is also developed a, a wiring schematic and rack drawings. So we we draw how all of that equipment is actually connected together, like each and every single connection, uh, and there can be thousands. Um, <laughs> and uh, and various different kinds of signal types. So there's you know speaker signal, mic signal, line signal, MIDI signal. Uh, there can be uh, general purpose input and output signals. Um, you know, it, it, it's endless. Um, and uh, we also build a, a plan for how the band will deal with their monitoring. So uh, we usually use like Avion mixers uh, so that they have a little mixer at their station and they can control what 
and how much of what they're hearing. And so once we we know what shop we're coming out of, we've drawn a wiring schematic, we then lay out all of the equipment on drawings of how it should be laid out in the rack. And then a team of people will go into the shop and build that sound system uh, from scratch. So the whole thing is built custom uh, and exactly to spec. Uh, that usually takes, depending on the size of the show, a really small show in a 50-seat theater could be a prep of three days. A uh, Broadway show is usually four weeks. And the team that's going into the shop to build the the, the tools, are they from you, like the your design team or would they be like from the shop or a third party? The, they'd all be provided by us. So... It would be the production audio person hires everyone that's going to be on the shop floor building and the first two slots or three slots of who builds the show are the A1, the A2, and the A3, if there is one. And then the rest of the slots get filled by overhires. Um, but generally people that we already have relationships with or you know, worked with us on other shows. And so we want to keep them working. And so they get to come in and build that show with us. Uh, so once it's all put together, then it gets tested and generally works. <laughs> uh, but there's lots of setup. You know, we have to like program all the processors with a computer and we have to like, you know, QLab, which plays back the sound effects, has to get programmed and signal in and out of it has to get tested. And then, you know, some, but you test it because that's when you find out that like, oh, what is this cable doing? Oh, that's not supposed to be plugged in there. It's supposed to be plugged in there. And so that's how you find all that stuff. Then we put it all in boxes and onto a truck and it goes to the theater. And then we put it back together again. And once we're done putting it back together again, we test it again. And then when it doesn't work, we say, but it worked in the shop. (laughs) Yeah, but we we test everything uh, a second time. And that's like kind of the basic outline of, of what that looks like. But I mean, everything down to for a Broadway show anyway, everything down to speakers inside dressing rooms are all brought in by us. I mean, there is the doorman's page microphone doesn't even exist. We bring that in. Oh, I never knew that. That's so interesting. Literally all you get from a Broadway theater is four walls and a place to plug in your power. And you guys are also responsible for setting up the band. Is the placement of the band up to you guys too? You guys work with, I'm sure the the composer or whoever's handling we work with i mean the whole team you know in the in the case of hadestown the band is on stage so um you know the director has an opinion about that and the producer and and the the music team wants the band on stage and to be seen uh so we work alongside the music team and the director and the whole team to uh figure out where the musicians musicians go and we draw band layouts uh to make sure that we've accounted for enough space on either side of the musician so that they have enough bowing space if they're playing the cello or enough of a space if they're playing violin um or you know if they've if they're a guitar player that's going to be playing five different axes throughout the show they're going to have to have enough space for that and a three by three square is clearly not enough so uh, we we lay all that stuff out uh, and we send it to the music team and they say, well, what if we put so-and-so over here? And, you know, they have they have clear thoughts on what sections, you know, who needs to be in what section and who needs to be hearing each other acoustically, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, we do we do work on that. And then we 
set up the bands. We spec every microphone that is on a piece of instrumentation. Uh, and then the, the team installs the band either in the pit or on the stage or wherever it goes. Is the drummer for Hades Town? I'm trying to remember. Is the drummer like kind of like in the in the set in the back? He is in the center of the set behind a uh, plexiglass. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Does the positioning so like like you said, Hades Town is on stage. I'm thinking of other shows that are like on stage. I think Dear Evan Hansen is like up above, like off to stage right or something like that. Does the positioning like how does your process differ depending on if they're in the pit on stage above the stage? Like what does that process look like? Um, you know, it depends on how much acoustic energy we're hearing from them. Uh, the drummer on Dear Evan Hansen is actually up on a platform just off stage left. You can't see him. If you were sitting house left, you'd be able to see that there's like a box like hanging in the air on top of, you know, this what we call the garage, which is the panel that opens. And there's a window in it, but you can't see inside it. So if you didn't know any better, you wouldn't know there's a drummer in there. But there's a drummer in there. So when you go to a new space, what are some of the challenges that and and how do you like read and like read the room, read the space acoustically and like where you are going to place your speakers and stuff like that? Generally speaking, most theaters are pretty similar. Like they either maybe have boxes or not, which means that there's going to need to be, you know, fill speakers sort of like pulling the pulling the signal at you know taking care of any any sort of shading that those boxes cause uh, and signal loss you know I have various speaker systems that I tend to like to use and and that I tend to, to go to first and some basic setups that I, I tend to go to but they they then get altered uh, on a show by show and space by space basis. So same thing with the system that's on stage. So, I mean, you wouldn't notice it, but there's like 25 speakers on stage at Hadestown that you can't even see. So they're, they're hidden in the stairs. They're hidden in the, in the, in the trim around uh, the edges of the scenic pieces. They're hidden in the trusses. They're hidden in the air underneath spiral staircases. Uh, they're, they're one, there's one sitting like right at the cello player's feet that's pointed at Hermes head whenever he's standing at his table. They're kind of everywhere, you know, and that the system on stage changes depending on what the scenery is uh, and where we can actually place speakers where they will either be useful or be hidden um, or both. Uh, the same is true for the house. You know, if we have only a single level uh, orchestra section, uh, then we don't need speakers up high to serve a mezzanine or a balcony. But then there are certain houses where uh, you know, Hades Town, for instance, has an orchestra section, a pretty large mezzanine section, and then this strange little balcony that's only got two rows of seating in it. To piggyback off of that last thought about like having the audience in different places, how much are you moving around the space during tech? I move around a fair bit during tech. Tech is hard to, you know, find the time to travel um, because you might have a lot of sound effects as well. So, uh, you know, I, I like make a couple of rounds throughout the theater and make sure that I'm not like completely like totally screwing it up for the people that might sit in the mezzanine. Once we get to the dress rehearsal, I am I am literally I mean, it's the only time that I'm going to have some people in the audience, but few enough that like every seat's available for me. 
So I will, I literally move to every single section. There's like six or seven, eight sections in the orchestra. I then, you know, left center and right of the mezzanine, near and far, front and back. I go to the balcony and then I probably make that trip two times through the show. So I'll do that whole trip to every spot of the theater through act one and then making changes on the fly with my iPad as it's happening uh, or at a computer. And, um, or sometimes I have a wireless laptop so I can do changes that way as well, live underneath, you know, to the chagrin of my, of my mixers who are, they're, they're mixing the show and it's just like everything is changing underneath their hands the whole time. But it's like, that is, that is the day I get like so much work done because I get to go everywhere. And then, um, yeah, and then I'll make that whole trip again in act two while also taking notes for the A1 uh, for, for, you know, anything that, uh, you know, any thoughts I might have on the mix. And then for previews, uh, you know, we, we request tickets to, you know, like sit in, I'll sit in the critic seats preview one. And then I'll sit somewhere in the mezzanine preview two, somewhere in the balcony preview three. And then I'll go back to the critic seats because I want to make sure that I haven't like changed anything about what, not because it's critic seats, but I want to go back to a reference point once I've made changes to the mezzanine and the balcony. And that's my reference point. Uh, and then from there, I'll move to the left side and the right side of the orchestra, front and back. I'll hit the front fills and then I'll go back to the mezzanine, but I'll go back to a different spot again to the balcony to a different spot. And then I'll start start circling back around again to all of those spots uh, in order. So I'll, I'll have sat in every section of the theater at least twice by the time I get to the end of previews. So this is going to take us back just a little bit from where we're talking about in the timeline. But just listening to you talk about your your physical relation in the space have me wondering when you're still in the process of designing it and they're building it in the shop, you know, assuming you have never worked or have never seen a show in a particular theater that you're about to go into, are you able to go into the space to get a feel for the vibe, the, the just like the acoustic quality? Like, are you able to experience that before starting to work on it or is it really just kind of like no we tend to get site visits and then there there are uh you know drawings of the spaces which we work in and so i actually did skip this part of the process is once i've done a site visit i might be like oh i think that this speaker will go well there and i think that i want this line array and it will go here and here and i'll kind of imagine it in my brain but then we'll take drawings and we'll actually go plug those speakers into a program that shows us what the sound will look like in the space. And and that's our prediction software. We put all the little, put all the little, little speakers on the, on the, on the drawing. And then, and then we say predict. And then all of a sudden all these colors show up and then we're like, Oh, that's bad. Okay. <laughs> like, it should be this speaker instead. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a way to scientifically predict that, you know, uh, over time, like I, I've been doing this for what, 20, 20 years at this point, And like, I've used a UPQ as my left, right speakers for, you know, six years. I know what it sounds like. I know it's coverage pattern. I know whether or not it can do the job that I'm looking for it to do. I don't necessarily need to go looking at prediction software if I'm doing a small show in a small space. And that's the main system. Like I know it's going to work. However, I'll do it anyway, 
because I want to make sure. Kind of switching topics a little bit. I'm interested to know, you know, we did talk about how sometimes sound is misperceived and maybe a, a harder element of the process of theater to really grasp. So what's your take on the industry and how it might respond to sound. You know, I find it really interesting that they cut the Tony Award for sound design for a couple years. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering what your experience is like and how people respond to sound within the industry. I mean, everybody hears differently and everybody has an opinion about what some, how something sounds. And you know, we also live in a society where everyone's wearing headphones all the time. And I can have my music in my headphones at whatever volume is comfortable for me. And I can listen to whatever style of music I want. And I can I can even change the EQ of stuff on my phone because I have some high-end hearing loss. And so I need to boost that a little bit in order for my music to sound better to me. Or that's just how I like my stuff to, you know, I want everything to sound brittle and terrible. And but that's my opinion and that's my choice. And I get to do it without bothering anybody else around me. So, you know, now come into a theater where the show needs to sound good for 1200 people who all have opinions about what the show sounds like and all hear differently. And, you know, some people have high end hearing loss and, it's trying to please as many people as possible, but knowing that you can't, that there's going to be like a small percentage of people that are just never going to be happy with it. Mm. You know, that really brings up a really interesting point that I, I thought about earlier. Do you have any input in the cast recording of something when you're designing? I don't. Todd Sikafus and I, who who did the original concept album for Hadestown and the cast album for the show, sent me a bunch of mixes uh, as he was working on them, which was really fun because I, I kind of got to have a little bit of input where I'm like, hmm, that feels like it's like almost as close to the reverb that we're using, but not quite, you know? Right, because, or... you know, sometimes those really good cast recordings are some of the ones that, like, if they're speaking on stage right, it's going to be more heavy in your right ear or, or your mm-hmm. left ear. So I'm mm-hmm. interested, like, I was always interested to know if the sound designer makes any of those choices. I mean, there are there are other, you know, uh, sound designers who have been involved, but that that's the most I've been involved. Uh, and And mostly because... You know, some of the effects that we do are, for instance, the reverb that's on this, the Hermes whistle is like, you know, I, I, if, if I went to see the show and that's what I heard and then I went and listened to the cast recording and it didn't sound similar or as awesome, I'd be upset. So it was, it was nice to have input into it, but I, I think in future I, I might see about trying to add a clause in my contract that makes me a producer on the cast album not the only producer but a producer just so that I can kind of be like well this is what we did in the show and here's all of our effects presets and etc and so on I mean that's a really cool thing to be able to preserve it's part of the show you know to be able to when you're listening to it imagine taking yourself to the theater well the other thing is you know there's a lot that can be done better than what we can do in the theater you know in the theater we're actually dealing with a live acoustic environment where we're amplifying sound into that acoustic environment and that's all bleeding back into the microphones all the time in the studio i mean it's it's in a box it's like there there is no feedback there is no you know there it's you can you can you can mangle that audio and and do whatever you want to it i mean within reason but 
you can do anything, you know, in, in the theater, we're actually somewhat limited to, to what we can do. And I, I think, you know, Nevin, Nevin's actually really funny because he said that, uh, I think he, I think he never listens to cast albums because it's not something that he could ever achieve in a live environment. In general or his cast album, like shows that he's done? His shows he's done. He doesn't listen to the cast album of shows he's done because what can be achieved by having isolated vocal recordings with no amplification system in play is like infinitely cleaner and just different than what he can achieve in live theater. You know, it's just not, it's just the mediums are so different and what you can achieve in either medium is just vastly, uh, vastly different so Hmm. because you brought up the tony awards i actually wanted to ask you about this so you were the first female sound designer to win in the Mm -hmm. sound design category but you were also the first nominated is that right am i right in that i'm the first nominated for a musical i'm Mm -hmm. only the second nominated for sound at all i mean how crazy Uh, is that i mean I'm I'm really curious because I'm always looking, I mean, as a woman in this industry, I'm always looking to see what other women are in the industry and what they're doing and what their journey has looked like. Because obviously everyone's journey, even if you're on the same trajectory, always looks different. And so I'm Mm -hmm. curious as to your thoughts on female designers in the industry and kind of what what can we do to like, to bring them up and to to get them recognized. Yeah. I mean, the way that I go about it is that, you know, I I make a concerted effort wherever possible to hire women. You know, it isn't always possible. There's there's a shortage. There's much less of a shortage now than there was 10 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. uh, You know, I was working on Fela Broadway and I was the associate and I was the only woman on the sound team, period. The whole team over the whole time. Like, I think there was one woman who was an overhire who did our shop build. But other than that, you know, I was it. I was it. Oh, and our, our sorry, our woman, our, our A2 was a woman. I mean, is it from there? I mean, is it just be based on who people know? I mean, I just feel like now in this current climate, and so that, that response is just not good enough. Right. I mean, it's a complicated issue because... Mo- I, I will say this, most of the time that I've ever been hired, I, I can't remember the last time someone asked me for a resume, right? People in this industry get hired because you, they've worked with you before, you have an established relationship, you have an established rapport, directors go back to designers that they've worked with before that they have a shorthand with, you know, it's, it's not, um, you know, and, I mean, and when you think about it, you know, who are you going to take a risk on if you're a director and you're doing your first Broadway show? Are you going to take a risk working with a designer you've never met or worked with before? Or are you going to hire designers that you have relationships with? When you think about if you were a Broadway producer and your show cost $14 million to create, are you going to go with the sound designer who especially in sound design, where most people don't understand what it is we do. Are you going to go with a sound designer who's done 50 Broadway shows and has been successful at that? Or are you going to go with someone who's never done a Broadway show before? No matter how good of a designer they are in other spaces, commercial Broadway theater is a slightly different beast. 
Are you going to go with the person who can deliver and you know that they can deliver or are you going to take a risk? Well, then would you say that it would be like on the designer's shoulders to to hire the assistants, the associates? Absolutely. And programs that put in place to get these people in the door, probably. And like I've decided that, you know, even if a theater is not going to have an intern, some theaters have interns. So at the Delacorte. Uh, there are four audio interns that work sort of production audio, which is like the installation side and the maintenance side, et cetera. But there's also a design intern provided for the design team. That is the only place that does that. That being said, my goal in future is to be more diligent about first and foremost, asking theaters to hire interns for this particular field and to uh, focus on women and BIPOC people uh, to to learn. And also, if the theater is not going to provide or, you know, I, I, they don't even need to provide the intern. They just need to be like, you know what, we're going to I am a big believer in in that unpaid internships should be outlawed. I think that they might be a learning tool, but at the cost of what? And they definitely lean toward white supremacy in that only privileged people who can afford to make no money and still get by or have families who are wealthy can afford to take unpaid internships. I was never in a position where I could accept an internship because I couldn't afford to not be working. You know, I I supported myself my whole life. My family's a working class family. They didn't have money to support me while I went to take some unpaid internship. You know, I I stopped going to CUNY college because I didn't want to waste my family's money, which was only like after my financial aid was only $1,200 a semester. But even that was a lot of money to ask my aunt to pay if I wasn't completely certain that I wanted that to be my major. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to pause on this for a minute because I'm not sure I know what it is I want to be doing. And once I decide, then I'll go back to school. But then I found theater. So uh, (laughs) I was like that topic of like the stop, you know, stopping until you figure out what you want to do is very near and dear to my heart. I really believe in like a gap year and so wish I would have like taken advantage of that just to like explore. I, I went to college because everyone told me that if I took a gap year, like, if you don't go right after you graduate high school, you're never going to go. So I enrolled. I was going to, I went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I was studying forensic psychology. My path was that I was going to become a police officer and then eventually join the FBI, etc. cetera. Um, and about a year and a half into, into college, I was like, I am not enjoying this at all. Like, this is, I don't think this is what I want to do. I don't want to do this. And so I stopped. Um, And yeah, and then I found theater and then, you know, I became fair. I was making like somewhat of a living at it pretty quickly. Like I mixed, I was stage managing and then all of a sudden I was mixing sound and then I had a job at a theater getting 50 bucks a show, which is not a lot of money, but 20 years ago, that wasn't like terrible for a community theater to be paying. And then next thing I knew, I had a sound up job uh, on an off-Broadway show, making $350 a week, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
which was abysmal to be working in the city. But uh, <laughs> true, at true. some point or another, I actually stopped my little side business of being a bookkeeper because I didn't have time to do it anymore. And then the idea of, you know, once I had that momentum going, the idea of stopping my career trajectory in order to take a three or four year pause to go back to school full time seemed really foolish. And there was no way for me to figure out how to fit working 12 hours a day, six days a week into a school schedule, like, and make the two things fit. And there was a brief time for about a year, I attended two semesters at Medgar Evers. And then I just got super busy again, and I couldn't do it anymore. So I don't, I don't have a college degree. But it's also not, you know, it's not really needed, you know, like it's not, at least in this industry, like, because you're hired based on who you know, and and you're building those connections, and you're also building up your own skill set. I don't think that it's, that it's hurting anybody. If you're a director or a dramaturg or, you know, uh, it, it maybe isn't necessary, but there is definitely, you know, people like, for instance, people who went to school at Yale to study theater all know each other. And guess who those directors hire? The network is built in already. That you already have a network. I didn't have a network. I came out of nowhere. I I did theater in the community theater and it started out as a hobby. And then I was like, oh my God, this is super interesting. And I kept going and 20 years later, here I am. But there are people who just like, walked out of Yale and into New York and had an associate job in a Broadway show. And I didn't have that because I didn't have a built-in, a built-in network. So that's, that's kind of a, that's a big thing that you get out of, out of college. And for a while I regretted it. I don't anymore. And it's just like, you know, listen, I'm 40. I don't think going back to college to get my bachelor's degree is really a thing (laughs) I need to do right now. (laughs) (laughs) We could talk to you forever, but I know. Um, we, we only have just a sl- we want to just do our lightning round of questions before we finish up today. Um, <laughs> so I know that this is one of Mary's favorite questions. I what is it. one thing and we're not really going to respond to any of these. We're just going to like go through them as lightning round. <laughs> what is one thing in the theater industry that confuses you? Oh, gosh. Uh, hiring practices. What was your favorite show to mix? Oh, gosh. Um, Smokey Joe's Cafe. Is there something in your process that you find unique to you? Early on in my career, I did a number of shows in which I never read the script until I got to the table read. I have to ask one more question. Oh. Another question on that. <laughs> Early on in your career. So do you, do you still do that or do you regret doing that? Like, why don't you do that anymore? I don't regret doing it because I feel like I was able to understand the play in a different way, having it read to me by various voices as opposed to reading it myself. I do not do that anymore. Okay. What is one hobby you have outside of theater? I just enrolled in an interior design course because I love interior design. However, I would say that my actual hobby that might be a retirement career, but my, my hobby is I draw. Uh, I, I, I draw. Which theatrical space has been, has had the best acoustics that you've designed in? <laughs> uh, uh, or the, the and the worst. The, the recording studio. <laughs> Sorry, that's not a theatrical space. Uh, the best acoustics. 
none of them. Um, Great. Love it. And the worst one, and, and no one on the sound team there is going to get mad at me for saying this, the worst acoustical space I've ever been in is the Olivier at the National Theatre in London because all of the walls are concrete. Wow. It's just all concrete. The whole room uh. is concrete. And it's a historical space, so you can't cover it with any material. Oh, wow. You can't mm-hmm. cover it? Oh, oh wow. Wow, I did uh, not know that. Um, okay, okay. Uh, what is one job in the theater industry that you would trade jobs for or trade jobs with for one week? Lighting designer. How well do you get acquainted with the raccoons when you work at the Delacorte? Oh my God, I totally have a picture of me holding a baby raccoon. Wait, oh, that's so cute. You have to send this to, that yeah, to us. Yeah, you have to send that. For you're not allowed, the story is you're not allowed to touch any of the animals at the park. So never mind. This, Please don't this. send that picture to us. To <laughs> press the post. No, but, but we heard this rustling one day and we were like, what the hell's going on? And we discovered that there were five baby raccoons in a trash can that the mother had put them in there to keep them from like scurrying about while it went to go find food. So we called Central Park Conservancy to come and get these baby raccoons out of the trash can. So they dumped the trash can over and out comes all this trash and five little like baby raccoons. And and I asked if I could hold one and they let me. And so I have a picture of me holding a little baby raccoon with its tail in my in the pocket of my hoodie. It's very cute. Oh, I love that. Um, And then our final question is, what is the last great piece of theater that you saw? I want to say Hades Town, but I'm also kind of obsessed with Six. I'm just going to say. Oh, that was the last show Mary and I saw together yeah. before the shutdown. <laughs> yeah. And I, I saw it in London and I got to see it. Uh, I got to see some rehearsal. I got to see a preview of it in on Broadway and I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with it. But I wouldn't call that like in classical terms, like a right. great piece of theater. <laughs> uh, so when you uh, when you say that, are you specifically maybe referring to the sound because i really liked the sound in that show i just liked the way they handled it with like the concert aspect oh yeah no i dug the sound um yeah i thought they did a great job i'm actually really good friends with the designer so nice yeah Awesome. Well, thank you you've, so much. You've um, really uncovered a lot of what Mary and I have been, because uh, when we started the podcast, you know, a lot of it goes into, you know, microphones, how to like do that kind of stuff. And like mixing. And <laughs> I remember us being in my apartment for our first few episodes being like, we need a sound designer on here just to like, so we can learn how to like to do this thing and see what we're doing wrong. And so mm. being here, you know, over a year later and finally getting to sit down with the designer, we're, we're so happy. So yeah, thank you. awesome. Thank you so Amazing. much. Thank you oh, for having me. And actually, so where can our listeners find you? Are you on, are you on social media, website, anything like that? Uh, jessicapaz.com or jessicapazdesigns.com. I am also on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I think I'm like J to the Paz or Jess to the Paz or something, something like that. <laughs> Great. Uh, but there's, uh, I believe links to my social media on my website. And I'll put that, I'll put everything in the description notes too. So everyone can click right to your site. There's a yeah resume bio, some portfolio stuff on there as well. Awesome. Amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of page to stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. We'll see you later. Bye.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.